kids get taken and you're not supposed to use, that's the first thing that you want to do. From the Minnesota Reformer, this is Reformer Radio. I'm Max Nesterak. When Tiffany Irvin lost her children at the height of her addiction to opioids, she didn't know anyone who could help her. It would have been instrumental in that time if I had a peer recovery specialist in that moment. That would have been great. Like, I didn't have anything. Drug and alcohol use has spiked during the pandemic, while addiction remains one of the most vexing diseases without a cure. This week, a conversation with a peer recovery coach about a program that pairs people who have overcome their addictions with people looking for recovery. If you need me to help you find resources, I can. If you need me for sober activities, we can go out and do sober activities. If you just need someone sober to talk to, because I understand, I'm here too. It's Friday, July 30th. Tiffany, can you start by introducing yourself? Yeah, my name is Tiffany Irvin. I am a mother of five in long-term recovery. And that means that I haven't used alcohol and drugs in about seven years. Um, I have five children, and I am the director of peer services at Minnesota Recovery Connection. So I want to start by asking you when you first started using. Um, So I started using probably when I was about 18. I slowly started with alcohol and then started with other substances, marijuana, kind of dib and dabbled, and then eventually had a cosmetic surgery, and that began my road down with opioids. You start using pain medication? Yes, correct. Yep. So I started, uh, I had my surgery. I ended up having two surgeries after the initial one, and so each time I was prescribed pain medication from a doctor. Um, Since I had you know, subsequent surgeries, I need more medication. And then I eventually found myself, you know, being hooked on it and just using it just for social use, to be Mm. honest. When did you realize your using was out of control? When I needed it every day. And then when I was, when I, when, when I was not using the proper avenues to get it. So like not using a doctor, when I was like going to look for my person that sold it, that's when I knew that obviously I had a problem. Hmm. What was a typical day like when you were really at the the peak of your addiction? Um, a typical day was waking up, smoking marijuana. Like I'd wake up to smoke marijuana like it was coffee. Um, mm-hmm. Take some pills. Then through then those usually would wear off after a couple hours, and so I'd take more, and then those would wear off in a couple hours, and I would take more. So it'd be like a constant throughout the day thing. Um, the that substance is very expensive (laughs) so over time I've obviously depleted my savings and depleted you know all of my money and so that's also a point when I realized it was too much for me to continue on but once again it got also to the point to where my dealer wouldn't have it like my dealer would be out and so I didn't have another dealer so it would force me to be sick because I couldn't Mm. you know I couldn't get it unless my dealer had some so I'd have to wait like two or three days until my dealer got more Mm. well then I'd be like laying around sick and I couldn't work for days my kids would see me like mom what's wrong and I just like oh mommy's got a cold Mm. right and then until my dealer had more in then I could go get more that was like the rat race for years. And then eventually, yeah, I knew I needed to do something else. Hmm. Can I ask you, so how were you supporting this expensive habit? Um, Honestly, I was an exotic dancer and a prostitute. Mm -hmm. And how often, so 
how much were you working? Monday through Sunday, every single night. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> so how did your use affect your family? Um, just that instability. I We went through a lot of nannies. I always had a nanny because I was always gone to work. So I was always gone at night and in the daytime I was always sleeping, right? Mm-hmm. So I think the kids didn't see me a whole lot and they probably recognized that that's, to them that might have been normal because that's kind of all they knew their whole life. Um, but if they knew like what their friends' lives were like, they would probably see that it was very unstable. But at the time, I thought it was fine. Like I didn't, I didn't look at it as unstable. Like I didn't look at it as I was a bad mom or that like you couldn't tell me that I wasn't a good mom back mm-hmm. then. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Um, it's it's not until like now that my life has changed that I look back and I see how unstable it really, really was. Mm-hmm. And then me being sick, like I think I was sick like maybe once every week just because wow. of the instability of being able to get the drugs. And so I remember that was a big thing that my kids always see. I remember they had told one of my other family members, mommy's always sick. Mm-hmm. And then my family was like, why? She's, you know, they you know I've always been healthy. So I'm like, why is she always sick? But we never elaborate on why mommy was really sick all the time. So it's unfortunate as I think about it now that they had to really go through that you know it sounds like you know you were still able to provide for your kids which is something that i think a lot of people in the throes of addiction are not able to do right yeah so that was one thing and 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 that's one thing that everybody recognized too regardless of what type of job that i had which obviously wasn't the greatest job um everyone knew that you know, Tiffany has five kids, but she takes care of them. That was like my tagline. You know what I mean? Because I did. And regardless, and everybody knew that I was the stripper. Not a lot of people knew that I was the prostitute, but I kind of kept that hidden. Um, but like my whole family knew, like my mom knew, everybody knew, but they respected the fact that I could take care of, that I was taking care of my kids, regardless of what I was doing. They were fed, they were clothed, they were, they were housed and I had them. You know what I mean? So, mm-hmm. you know, I have my own experience with, addiction and recovery and you know when I was using there's this sense of um pride that you can in some ways hold it together but also excuse making where you don't look at the ways it's not right. <laughs> holding together and right. it's not normal right yeah and also knowing that there's like this you know there's also a demoralization that comes with the use of not being able to go without it and and not you know, for me, I there were times when I didn't want to use so badly, um, but then in the next thought, I used again. Right. Is that the same experience you had? I mean, I did have that. I knew that what I was doing wasn't a healthy lifestyle. You know, I knew it wasn't normal because for me, and, and I think pretty much all people who use drugs, it is that rat race, that rigmarole of using the drug, you know, buying the drug, using the drug, going to find the drug, going to get it. You know what I mean? It's like, like it's, another full-time job yeah, I mean, it really on is. top of being a dancer. <laughs> I know. It, it really is. And so I knew that that wasn't, like, normal. Like, I shouldn't have to, like, have this part of my life where I'm going to find drugs every day, every week. You know what I mean? Um, so, so, yeah, there was, so to answer your question, yes, there was a part of me that, yes, wanted to, to stop, you know, but I couldn't. And then I also didn't want to admit that to anybody that I had a a problem because I was Tiffany and I had five kids and I held it down. And you know what I mean? I had this persona Mm -hmm. about me that I was like superwoman. And if I told anybody that I was scared and that I wanted to quit, I don't know why I'm going to get emotional. Mm. I don't know why. 
Okay, just give me a second. Mm-hmm. Sorry. So stupid. <laughs> no need to apologize. Um, I think if I, if I had asked anybody for help, it would just, I don't know. I think if, for me, I, I will myself to be strong and I don't have mm-hmm. a lot of, I don't have a lot of support. And so mm-hmm. I try to be strong. And so for me to want to reach out to somebody and tell somebody that I need help, that was hard for me. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? That was really hard for me. So I think that's why I did. I went, I went for so long. I think I used for 15 years, like the whole time I was dancing. Wow. And so, and t- and then I think I also didn't see much, many outlets. So I'm from Iowa. And so I didn't see many outlets in Iowa for help. Like if I could think about a treatment center that I know of in Des Moines, I can't even think of a name of one. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So I didn't know any outlets that could help me with that. So I didn't reach out as you know, and it could be I wasn't educated, you know, about it because I wasn't in that field or whatever. But, you know, that's that's why the community needs to be educated so that people can reach out if they need help. Because I think that was my problem. I think I would have stopped sooner if I knew there was help. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? So, yeah. So what happened where you were ultimately forced or able to find help? Um, so I, when I lost custody of my kids was pretty much the catalyst for my change, mm-hmm. right? Um, you know, and really the reason behind losing my kids and kids wasn't 100% my doing, you know, I do take accountability for the situation that happened, but it really wasn't 100% my doing. Um, my oldest son's father had just came out of federal prison, um, after he'd been locked up for 14 years straight. And so we got back together. And while I was working, um, actually as a police dispatcher, he, unbeknownst to me, was selling drugs. And so apparently the federal agents were watching him. And while I was at work, they found drugs in my drawer, in my clothing drawer that he had put there. But he was watching my kids. So when they came in, there was a house full of five kids and there's drugs in the house. They take the kids. Mm-hmm. All while I'm at work. <laughs> and I have no so idea. So you were working as an exotic dancer and yes. as, and as a police yep. dispatcher. Yep. Wow. Yeah. Yep. Um, and so, you know, I come. I literally come home from work with my <laughs> police ambulance dispatcher outfit on, um, and open up my door. And I have no idea. Open my open up my door like normal, and my whole house is full of federal agents. Oh my god! <laughs> my kids are in the back room with a federal agent, and that was the beginning of a very sad and scary part of my yeah. life. Well, what happened next? Um, they immediately took the kids. They took them that day. Like they walked out with them and said, you know, we'll see you in a few weeks and we'll talk to you about it. And so from that day, I had visitation with my kids once a week. So it went from me being with my kids every day till by the snap of a finger, you're only going to see your kids once a week. It was mm. absolutely devastating. Um, but then I just had to show them because I was already working. Right. You know, I had a good job. And so for them, they wanted to see, you know, clean UAs, and they really wanted me to... Urinary analysis, yes, right? Yes, yep, yep. Um, and then they wanted me to really move move out of the house that I was in because it had been raided for, you know, there was drugs in the house. So I think they wanted to move, move out of my house. So that was what I was working on, was doing clean UAs and trying to find, um, you know, a different place. But they stayed gone for so long because I didn't. I didn't have clean UAs. And so that's where I'll take full accountability for. I think I probably could have gotten my kids back sooner had I stayed stayed clean, or I will say stay um, in recovery I, but it's difficult to do. Like, Mm -hmm. 
your kids get taken and you're not supposed to use, <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. Like that's the worst time of your life. And so that's the first thing that you want to do. And so that was very difficult. But obviously if you have, you know, you need, you want to get your kids back, you'll do what you got to do to get them back. And so right. that's eventually what I did. Tell me the story about how you ultimately got into recovery and stayed in recovery. Uh, so after I lost custody of my children and got them back, um, you know, I knew that I wanted to, I knew that I had to move away from Iowa. That's my hometown. So I wanted to move away. You know, I eventually did kind of start dibbling and dabbling back into the pills again after I felt like, oh, I got them back and everything's good. Mm-hmm. And I went back, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, like short, this time's going to be different. Yes. Right. Yeah. But it wasn't. It was It was the same thing. Um, and I ended up overdosing while I was driving with one of my children and two of my boys in the car. Um, I had a seizure while I was driving. Luckily, I was with a friend and my friend was able to, you know, drive us to safety so we didn't get hurt or we didn't get in a wreck or anything. But that was what really did it. You know what I mean? It was 100 percent. Okay, you could have killed you, everybody else in the car. You know what I mean? Um, So I moved to Minnesota. Uh, Right when I moved to Minnesota, um, I bought a home. And the house that I lived in, I walked out the back gate, and there was a treatment center. Hmm. It was Valhalla Treatment Center, right out my back gate. And so I'm like... Okay, God, I get everything happened for a reason. Yes, exactly. I'm like, I understand. This is in my face right now. Um, so yeah, so I went to Valhalla and that I started using uh, med- uh, medicated assisted treatment. Um, and so like Suboxone. Yep, or meth- yep. Okay. So I started out. So I started out with methadone, um, and eventually kind of switched over to Suboxone. But yes, so that started, um, and then I started looking for. Uh, you know, a place that I could work that was in the recovery community. So I wanted that support. As I moved up to Minnesota, I have a little bit of distant family here, uh, but some of my family that are here also kind of dip and dabble in drugs. And so I knew that they weren't going to be 100% super supportive for me. So I was looking for some type of community support. I think I was Googling something in, you know, addiction field or recovery community and a pop peer recovery specialist. And I had never heard that term before. So I'm like, what is that? So I looked that up and then up pops, you know, Minnesota Recovery Connection. So I go to their website and I'm like, this is cool. And I remember specifically our value and our missions at Minnesota Recovery Connection are multiple pathways. And I had never heard that before. Like I always thought it was just like abstinence and that was it. And so when I seen that, that intrigued me. And so they had, you know, advertisement for the Recovery Coach Academy on their website. And everything happens for a reason. And so when I call, you know, to sign up for the Recovery Coach Academy, there's an application time frame. And like the deadline was like a week later. And so I hurry up and put my application in. I started volunteering at MRC and it just kind of went from there, kind of snowballed from there to where once I started volunteering and became a peer recovery specialist, I knew that I had support and a community in MRC. And that's that's really all that I needed. And I think that's what a lot of people need who are in recovery is you just need supportive people with, you know, with a like minded cause, you know, wrapped around you. Hmm. So what. When you became a peer recovery specialist, 
what did that mean? What did you do for other women? Um, so it's people, you know, anybody, men or women in general. Okay. Yep. Um, but you are a, a coach or mentor. You know, you're someone who has lived experience. You use your personal story to provide hope with others. But then also it's also that relatability that like you can talk to me about your situation because I was like there or something mm-hmm. similar to that. Um, but then also being able to walk alongside of that person versus being above them or having this high, you know, this hierarchical relationship. It's I'm going to walk alongside you, support you in the choices that you make in your recovery. Um, but also giving you that, that openness and that autonomy so that you can choose what your recovery looks like for you. Hmm. You know, my own path to recovery started with, um, uh, inpatient treatment and, uh, at a, place that followed what's called the Minnesota model. Oh, yeah. Which is um, developed, you know, developed in the 1950s and popularized by Hazelden. It's that um, blending of the 12-step program with professional counseling. And, you know, recovery in that model is defined by abstinence. And, you know, that's not the whole part of recovery. You want to restore Uh, your relationships, you want to lead a healthy life, you want to be able to have valuable and and positive friendships. But abstinence is the ticket to the show, if you will. And with peer recovery specialists, the goal isn't always absolute abstinence. And that's not something you're advertising or telling people they have to do. Right. So I guess I'm curious how you go about defining what recovery is with, um, people through the Minnesota Recovery Connection if it's not abstinence. Right. Uh, So recovery is just a a healthier sense of well-being, right, in all aspects of your life. So if you're looking at, like, socially and emotionally and physically and, like you said, like, you know, restoring relationships, you know, you can still be using and be in recovery, right, as long as you are using to the best of your knowledge, as safe as possible, um, and you're still able to work and still able to have good relationships, you can still be in recovery. When you say define recovery, it's difficult to really define because it Mm -hmm. looks different for everybody. So what your recovery, you know, what you say is recovery might not look like recovery for Mm -hmm. me, you know. And so so that's why we leave we leave that into like what you say, the eye of the beholder. You Mm -hmm. know what I mean? We leave that to that person. Um, When I'm working with a participant, that's really what the first thing that I ask them is when I'm with them is what does recovery look like to you? You know, because it could be that I was using crack and now I want to use you know just marijuana I don't want to use crack anymore but I want to use marijuana or I do want to use crack but I don't want to use crack as much to the point to where I'm falling asleep at work or I can't take it you know what I mean and so what I can't tell somebody that they are like are failing at recovery because it looks different than what I expect it to be and I think that's kind of the problem with um some places and even like kind of like the Minnesota model right. where like the abstinence is supposed to be the key. Well, not necessarily for everybody, you know what mm-hmm. I mean? And I think it's, we're in a, we're in a spot now in our society to where I think it's beneficial for us to make sure that we're giving everybody that openness and giving them the, the, the you know, the ability to make their own decisions when it comes to recovery. Mm. You know, I'm not going to, I don't want to, I'm not going to judge anyone else's recovery, right. but I am curious if, there are people who can actually be social crack users or or 
use crack and stay in recovery. Yeah. Or, you know, because that's something you mentioned. And I wonder, have you seen someone do that successfully or 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 maybe their definition of recovery evolves? You know, maybe. I have, no, to answer your question, no. I have not seen anybody use do, do that. Um, I have had a participant um, that was a... a, a active heroin user mm-hmm. um, and the the way that I could support this participant was giving them resources to syringe uh, exchange places mm-hmm. um, and even if that was really all that I could do you know even if that's all that I can do at least they're getting cleaner syringes and they're not going to be out using dirty syringes you know and maybe transmitting all different types of diseases um, and me just checking in with them you know and if they are willing to even accept my call that little bit could be recovery because maybe two months ago they didn't have a peer recovery specialist in their life so maybe they're even contemplating because the whole time that I'm working with them I'm always going to be talking about positive things goals in your life that's the main thing we work mm-hmm. on when we're with somebody is what type of goals do you want to do and maybe like you said recovery for them may evolve you know I can't see you know someone wanting to like be homeless for the rest of their life right right? so that's a goal that we'll work on and then maybe once they get a home hey I want a car so then they're 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 what they thought recovery was was just getting clean needles maybe in two or three months now it is I don't want to be doing this anymore I want to get a house and a car you know maybe it will evolve and so that's all that we can hope so if you and I think that's the biggest message that I give to my staff and then I you know when I am working with a participant is that hopefully over time if you the peer recovery specialist keeps showing up for them that hopefully that that form of recovery for them does evolve into something bigger mm-hmm. and better you know when i first uh entered treatment and i heard the abstinence thing i thought i was like well that's for somebody else right. <laughs> i just need to get my life together and then right. i'll go back to you know how it was and it'll be different right. um and that was you know it was just a very scary thought to me um but then as as I progressed in recovery, I, I, I realized that I can't have the life I want to have and use. And, and for me, I just knew enough about myself that I'm not going to be a social drinker right. user. That's something that um, that's a realization that you came to yeah. yourself. And I'm wondering if that's a realization that a lot of people come to. Well, I think so. And I think, you know. You know, I don't want to be hypocritical, but I think you almost have to sometimes because obviously if you're still socially using, you're still going to the dope guy to get it. Right? Mm. You know what I mean? You're still you you're still you know, immersing yourself in this this world that's not healthy. You're still talk, you know, you're still using illegally or you still have illegal substances around you. So there's still this cloud mm-hmm. that's underneath you that. Um, and so that's why I feel like a lot of people do eventually come to this where they're recover their what their idea of recovery it does evolve because it almost kind of has to after right. a while because you and then it's easy if you involve yourself in that stuff to get pulled back in so quickly and so if you want it you it's almost like you gotta even want one side or the other mm-hmm. you know so so yeah to answer your question I. I think that people's recovery will evolve over time um, and what they what that looks like for them. Um, but there are still some. I mean, I know of a participant right now that's harm reduction all day that says they'll never stop being harm reduction method. And I can't do anything but respect it. Mm-hmm. You, know? you know, one of the saddest and most vexing things about addiction and substance use disorder is that there aren't 
easy, effective treatments. Right. You know, Alcoholics Anonymous is touted by those who've had success with it or people who know someone who've had success with it. But, you know, I looked this up. Even the most favorable scientific findings for AA report underwhelming results. Um, for example, Cochrane, which is often looked to to provide the final word on treatment, published a review of AA in 2020 and found that 42% of participants were sober after just one year. So that's just, you know, less than half mm -hmm. after just one year. And I imagine, you know, your work is full of seeing people slip or have a setback or have a failure. And I wanted to ask you how successful your coaches are or rather how successful your coaches can be. Um, so that's kind of difficult to answer because it's difficult to define what success is. Right. You know what I mean? And what that looks like for one person looks different for someone else. Um, so, yeah. So those, you know, those, those numbers that you just gave about AA seem very familiar. You yeah. know, I want to say probably less than half of our participants, I'm sure, you know, like we lose count, we lose touch with them. You know, yeah. our services are all voluntary. So nine times out of 10, you know, we'll be reaching a participant. You know, I think most of our relationships will be from three months till about six or seven months. Mm -hmm. But after that, sometimes either if they've already reached their goals that they had, then they won't need us anymore. Or sometimes they may, you know, have a return to you. So we don't hear from them anymore. So the relationship sometimes isn't long. We right. don't have a cap on our relationships. Um, but what we are able to do is if we are able to continue to keep speaking with them. That, that's what I tell my staff. Like, if they're still answering your call, that within itself is is somewhat of a success. You know, if they're still just getting that peer support, which is just a peer talking with another peer about recovery, that's successful to me. Mm. If someone is listening to us talking right now and thinks they have a problem or they know someone who has a problem with their drug or alcohol use, what should they do? Um, I think they need to reach out, um, reach out, try to find support. They could definitely call Minnesota Recovery Connection. Uh, you know, addiction is a disease, and I think that a lot of people feel that addiction is a choice, and, and it's not. It, it's a disease, and I would hope that that person knows, and if they don't know, I'm telling you that you have support. There is somebody that, that will support you, and that's where it starts. That's where it starts is just that connection, because the opposite of addiction is human connection. And so that's where it mm -hmm. starts, and then from that point, we can work on everything else. Tiffany, thank you so much for being here. Well, thank you for having me. This show was produced by me, Max Nesterak, with help from Brita Green. Our editor is Patrick Kulikin. Special thanks to Johnny Vince Evans, who composed our theme. As always, if you like the show, tell your friends and family to subscribe and leave us a positive review on Apple Podcasts. If you want to send me a message, you can drop me a line at max at minnesotareformer, all spelled out, dot com. Thanks for listening and have a great weekend.